The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. I got mugged at knife point. So I I was was riding late in the evening uh, and a couple of guys on a motorcycle, um, they pushed me off my bike and one of them was taking stuff from my bags and stuff and the other one like held me and, and there was a knife like right here. And when you can see the knife and the edge of it shining, suddenly your life flashes in front of you and you do realize what you actually want out of what you're experiencing. And, well, what I wanted was to be alive, basically. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on your own grand adventure. My next guest is an endurance athlete and adventurer. In 2018, she rode 29,000 kilometers around the world in 160 days, becoming the youngest woman to have cycled the world. Today on the podcast, we speak about her childhood in India and moving to the UK at the age of 18. What inspired her to undertake such an incredible journey and of course the highs and lows of the round the world trip. So I am delighted to introduce Badangi Kulkarni to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, great to have you on and you've got quite the story to tell. I mean, you've You've cycled around the world. You were the youngest female to ever cycle around the world. And I mean, I cannot wait to hear <laughs> it. But let's let's start at the beginning and about you and how you sort of got into this adventurous life. It's, it's quite, well, thank you for the kind words to start with. Um, and as far as my adventurous life is concerned, it wasn't always like that. But what I can definitely say is that I, my parents have always been incredibly supportive with my strange life decisions. Um, and they've always kind of, we, I grew up traveling a lot. So every time, so in, in my culture, there's quite a few, um, there's quite a few kind of festivals and stuff. So, you know, things that call for a holiday, a school holiday or whatever, so um, me and my parents used to go for, um, like, I don't know, we used to drive across the country and stuff just to see places and experience the journey and, you know, just have a good time. And they were never really, my parents were never really strict about the grades and stuff. They were more cared about the fact that, you know, was I growing up to be a good person, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that was really cool about them and um that meant that they were more open to um new opportunities and they were yeah just really open-minded in general and yeah I distinctly remember that one of the my first kind of memory of traveling with my parents was um when we were all on the moped actually and I used to live in like a mountainous kind of region and 
I was standing, so I was like tiny, I don't know, three, four, whenever your first memories are uh, from, and I was standing in front, you know, where you're meant to keep like your bags and stuff. I was standing there. My my mum was riding that moped and my dad was sitting behind. And yeah, like we had traveled for like hundreds of miles like that. And then eventually my parents made like a little seat in front there for me. And yeah, then my mum eventually bought a motorbike and she used to take me to some incredible places on a motorbike. And bear in mind for a woman riding a motorbike, it was kind of like a taboo. So my mum kind of not just riding a motorbike, but, you know, taking me, her child with her and, you know, it was deemed risky. And my mum was more than happy with taking that risk because she was like, this is fun and I want my daughter to grow up to know that, you know, women can do cool things. And that was incredible. This was in the mountainous region of India. Yes. So basically, when I say mountainous, we lived on a plateau, but close to us, there were like really high mountains. So the region that I lived in, um, it was basically back in the day, there were many forts and on, on the top of big mountains around there. So, yeah, I also grew up hiking in those forts quite a bit, on those forts quite a bit. And yeah, so my dad used to work abroad and every time he came back, uh, so one month on, one month off, so he used to work in the middle of oceans and stuff. So that one month off that he used to be with us, we would make the most out of it and go places and just... I don't know, we, we would go for hikes, we would just, you know, have different sorts of experiences. So uh, one of the wildest things I remember, which now when I think about it, they weren't like wild. It was just like something that um, meant a lot to my family. It was more, more like me and my parents used to love watching this Bollywood film. And I... I think it was uh, the film was released when I was like two or three years old. But when I was like growing up, we used to watch that a lot. And then when I was like 13 or 14, I said to my parents that I want to go to go and see where the film was filmed. You know, it was like, I want to see the set and everything. And it turned out the set was in the middle of nowhere in one end of Gujarat in like run of Kutch. And um, it's like salt plains kind of thing and you drive in the middle through that and it's beautiful and and to get to that place was a nightmare our car was not equipped for that amount of off-road driving but my mom pulled it through you know she took us there and I remember just me and my dad were so like oh my god that's where that happened and that's where that scene was filmed and you know and <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful and it was really cool and yeah now when I think back at it I think I bought brought all of the stuff that I learned from that experience and those experiences into the UK when I came here but before we get to that phase one last thing would be that the defining moment that kind of I don't know played a part in getting me where I am is um, actually I went for this short trip in the Himalayas with my ex-boyfriend and um, I met some really incredible people there who have done like race across America and stuff like that but this guy he is now like a really kind of someone I look up to he's my mentor and um, he was like hey you're really good at the cycling thing um, have you considered doing the full route? The full route goes from Manali across these, you know, four or five mountain passes to Leh, which is like the capital of the dark region, and then, or the biggest city in the dark region, anyway, and then you can go to Srinagar, and it's like a really long route, and, you know, you could do it. And then he was part of Youth Hostel Association of India, but I wasn't allowed to join the group expedition because I was 17 and you need to be at least 18 to do that so as it turned out I just joined it uh, by myself so I didn't I didn't go with the group instead I went by myself and my parents were like in a the car they were like you know 10 miles somewhere around doing their thing 
And I told them that the only time I want to really see you is when I set my camp up. And otherwise, I'm going to be by myself. And I think that experience of being in the Himalayas and knowing, trying to understand my place in the world and, you know, just kind of being alone in the mountains um, at very high altitudes and understanding what's around me, that was an interesting experience, which really kind of, yeah, which is where it all started, really. Well, it's it's amazing you had such, as I say, supportive parents growing up. Because as we were speaking on the podcast before, very rarely, especially at such a young age, uh, I would have thought parents might have been persuading their kids to sort of move in another direction. And so having such supportive parents at such a young age probably gave you that platform to really express yourself and to pursue these adventures, which you know, other people might sort of, I don't know, be slightly afraid of, would you say? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And the interesting part is that my parents weren't just kind of supportive in a way that, right, if you're doing this by yourself, go do what you like. They actually kind of encouraged that in a way. So like they they were proud of me for doing something different and even now when I find myself in in some really odd places in my mind where I'm like I just called my dad and I'm like this was a mistake like this is not happening I'm not earning enough money I'm not getting enough support I'm like I'm just I'm just in this what in this country by myself and not getting it and my dad's like I'm proud of you for having those experiences and for where you are and I'm proud of you for going beyond your comfort zone and no, like restarting your whole life in a new country and doing what you do. And he he hasn't just been the person who's like, oh, no, I'll be fine. He actually makes me understand that where I am, I should, I'm extremely privileged to be in that position. So, you know, make the most out of it rather than, rather than playing yourself down all the time and just kind of you know, being too hard on yourself, I suppose. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about one of my trips and when when I was down, I had like horrific injuries, food poisoning, everything and like absolutely shocking. I remember calling my father and he just said, well, you better carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Which at the time was not probably what I wanted to hear, but it was probably, it was almost certainly the right thing. Yeah. Um, but now, as you say, just having um, that sort of support system with it, uh, I imagine was a massive help. Definitely. Uh, and so you moved to the UK. What, how old were you when you moved to the UK? I I had just turned 18. And when I say just turned 18, it was within a week of my birthday. So on 12th of September, I turned 18. On 17th of September, I took my flight. And um, yeah, the first thing I did when I arrived was to put my bike together. (laughs) Because priorities, eh? (laughs) Um, Put my bike together. And I was like, so what's this Bournemouth University thing so what's the deal with having different campuses how does this work and I think I had imagined something really different so when I thought about different campuses I thought it's just two buildings next to each other and I'm going to the building on the left instead of the building on the right that was how I envisioned instead it turned out it's like on the other end of the town almost that sort of thing and I was like that's insane. Like, that's beyond what I had imagined, um, like a university being like. And then it was such a culture shock. Everything, everything was like, because bear in mind, I I landed, I had this bike bag, bike box with me. I had a suitcase and a big, like massive rucksack with me, um, like the mountaineering one. And I, I, I got there and I was like, so where's Bournemouth then? How do I get there? Um, and I got to Bournemouth station and I was like, 
so where's Boscombe? Like, how how do I get to that place? And this is a big place and everything looks so different. Like, the roads are different. You have to press this button to cross the road. Like, what's the deal with that? And it was kind of like that. And um, then even, like, taking a taxi and you know how British people kind of have that banter in like you know every every now and again I'm, I'm, I just don't understand the, the I remember I remember the taxi guy said something like ah oh, big box I must be a, uh, hope there isn't a body in it and I got so scared I got so scared I thought he was accusing me of something and oh god oh I remember that and I'm so embarrassed because I was so scared lol um anyway yeah first thing I did was put my bike together and go um, to find wherever my university was and get incredibly shocked that there was more than one building at one campus. And there were like multiple buildings which were called different things and different buildings are for different things. And that it isn't just like one massive building and then sections of it. It was just, yeah, just different it was like massive, the, the the campus, and I just couldn't fathom it. And then I was like, okay, so what's this lecture hall thing? And just going in there and realizing that it's like a f- movie theater. Um, like, yeah, I, I, I've only been to like three movies, like in a cinema kind of thing. But it, that's how it felt, because I've never known anything better. So it was really strange. Um, but yeah. And knowing that the university doesn't run from like, you know, I don't know, seven in the morning to 12 in the afternoon or like nine in the afternoon to four in the evening. Like I, I, I was shocked that you actually have like a series of lectures at different times of the days and you just attend them and find a place to hang around. Um, it was really strange just kind of being a foreigner in this country and just looking around. And so, God, so you sort of had a massive, uh, you know, wake up culture shock to the UK. <laughs> was that the idea behind sort of cycling around the UK? So, no, no, absolutely not. So, okay. Basically, I was really struggling to make friends and like, genuinely struggling. And I, as someone from a very different culture I didn't know where the boundary was you know between people being nice to you and people actually meaning what they're saying you know being friends so if someone said we should totally catch up and have a cup of tea you should come over at some point I would actually go over and they were only trying to be you know polite they didn't actually mean it so I was struggling with all of those things and really struggling to actually like you know make good friends which I understand now that it takes time but at the time, as someone, I felt incredibly lonely. So I took up cycling for long distances and I didn't just take it up. I used to ride from Bournemouth to Exeter, stay somewhere under a bus shelter or something strange like that, and then ride back the next day. Or like, I would just ride to some odd places that I would see in the map and be like, oh, I wonder what this place is like, or that place is like, and I would just ride there. And I would stay somewhere, come back and be like, and just like kind of slip it into conversations with people, you know, kind of be like, oh yeah, I went to Exeter, I rode to Exeter and back the other weekend. They would be like, you did what? Um, And even I didn't realize that Exeter was actually quite far and it's quite hilly along the way. All all I knew, I had my bike, I think it's like 100 quid, like I got it from India and that's like 100 quid bike and for me it was the best bike ever because it had taken me across Himalayas and you know I was like stoked about it and then my mentor from India he suggested he was like have you heard of London Edinburgh London it's an Odax event it's 1400 kilometers you've got five days to do it and I was like I'm signing up um signed up for it and realized that I actually need to train for it because it's a long distance. So a part of my training was this 400 kilometer ride. So I was going to go from Bournemouth to London and back. Instead, when I started off with that ride, and bear in mind, I had a saddle pack, the Apidura 17 litre one, and a backpack with me. 
and there wasn't much like there was no sleeping gear there was just clothes and uh, water and shit tons of food that I probably didn't even need and I didn't I didn't even have a proper puncture repair kit that's what we're talking I was unprepared um left and as as things go my bike had something wrong with it so in this small village called Bentley in Hampshire I was fixing my bike got into a conversation with a really kind of really like amazing um lady and got got invited to you know sleep over at hers and was telling stories to her daughter and her family and it was it was really cool and then I was asked where I'm going and I was like right can't can't say I'm only going back to Bournemouth now can I so I just pointed to John O'Groats on the map and um that was that. I didn't know the route. I didn't know how to get to John O'Groats. I thought Reading was pronounced as reading. Uh, and I just thought it would be a good idea. So that's how the whole kind of riding across from Bournemouth to John O'Groats happened. And even like the word John O'Groats, it, it was something I, it didn't make sense to me, you know. If that, I'd, I'd like, I was like, oh, wow, that's a strange word. It would be fun to say it out loud. That's how, like, you know, it's, I know it sounds, like, really bizarre, but that's actually how it was. That's how stupid I was to just be like, oh, that, that looks funny. That also looks like end of the country. Oh, I wonder if I can ride there. Cool, I'm going to ride there. And just pointed out at all of the major cities along the way and yeah got there in the end um through some incredibly strange experiences like sleeping in the bus shelters knocking on random people's doors hoping someone would you know put me up for the night didn't know that's not how you do it in this country but you know um people are kind what can i say like and again like at the time, I really was that dumb foreigner who doesn't understand anything or who can't even speak English. I had a very strong accent, like I didn't speak properly. So, you know, I couldn't even speak in proper kind of, I don't know. I didn't have any consistency in the way I spoke English, if that makes sense. And I couldn't understand other people either. So that kind of added to the whole experience. So, yeah, I happened to meet someone who had auditioned for the same Bollywood film that I had auditioned for. Um, she got she she had played this. Um, I don't even remember. She had played a wrestler and um, I had auditioned for a part playing opposite her. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't got it, by the way. <laughs> well, I think it's that, I think to do this, you need a sort of s slight sense of naivety. Because otherwise, you if you, yes. <laughs> I think otherwise you, if you go knowing everything, I don't think, I think, and you go with a sense of all the sort of horror stories that you usually get told about, you wouldn't get started. Exactly. And to have that, and to have that sort of sense of naivety, I think really helps because I think people work off that. And that is why, in a sense, sometimes why people are so kind. Maybe they saw pity on me when I did it. But, um, but I, I think it also helps slightly having that you sort of slept in bus shelters wild camped i mean without, God, what a without story. any sleeping kit that was yeah um <laughs> now when i think about it now my job is planning expeditions and adventures or you know managing other people's expeditions assessing risks and marketing and stuff and now when i think about it i'm like everything I did then was against everything I would suggest other people to do now. Um, but having that wild edge is something that we all need in spite of all the planning. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that, um, but that was also the beginning of my 
bigger dream of getting around the world in 100 days, um, which also, by the way, the 100 days bit didn't happen, <laughs> but we'll get there. Um, when I was writing to John O'Groats, obviously, I didn't have um, anyone other than my parents and a few Facebook friends to report back to about how my days are going. So I just felt incredibly lonely. So I was reading a book called This Road I Ride by Juliana Buring. And that was where I found out about this uh, record about, you know, getting around the world, circumnavigating the world on bicycle. Like, wow, that's also a thing. Um, is it something that I want to do? Is it something that I can do? And with this whole kind of questioning if that was something I wanted to do and if I could do I would like just read more and more of her book along the way and as I got to John O'Groats I had finished the book I was just sitting there and thinking to myself how none of what I've done had been planned how none of what I had done had been trained for and still we made it across the fucking country so what are we waiting for? We can probably do more than this. So the next kind of progression to that for me was riding my bike around the world. Um, that's where the dream came from. And um, yeah, that was where it all started. How much planning did it sort of take to get that expedition off the ground? Oh, a lot, a lot, a lot more than I was prepared for. A lot. And a lot more than I was prepared for with a lot less patience than I think I have now. Let's put it that way. Many, many months. Um, and I didn't know many people in the industry. Oh, many people. I didn't know any people in the industry. Um, I just knew that I, I had a big dream and I was very tiny and I needed to train for it. Um, <laughs> so my university took pity on me probably uh, like probably edit that bit out my my university uh, was incredibly helpful in in setting up the training resources for me so there was a personal trainer and all that but being strong enough to do something doesn't ensure that you do it you need to have money for it. You need to know how to put yourself out there. And my way of doing that was DMing thousands of people who I thought would know more than I do and just asking them questions and learning from them. So Mark, Mark Beaumont, for example, I met him. I, I, I wrote to Kendall Mountain Festival from Bournemouth. Um, well, I wrote to Kendall to meet him. Um, and talk to him about this and he was incredibly helpful with un helping me understand what I need to have in place to pull something like this off and that was so helpful and I remember it was quite surreal with like him, Sean Conway and myself at like Brewery Art Centre and I didn't even like beer but I had quite a few of those and I was just like I can't believe this is happening because if I'm talking to this about these, uh, uh, if I'm talking about this to these legends, I actually have to do it. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, eventually, um, I had, I, it, it was hard work getting the funds together because I had sent 512 or something like that emails, and only 12 of them got back with a positive response. Probably in total. Not more than 30 people got back full stop. So it did take that much effort, but that was because I knew nothing about which brands to approach, what research to do, um, and, and, and what questions to ask, how to present myself to certain brands, and how am I unique in what I'm doing, and how can I actually make a point of that. I knew none of that. All I knew is that Oh, I have a dream, which is to, you know, ride my bike around the world. Um, I don't have a track record. I've only, like, ridden my bike kind of across the Himalayas and across the UK. But again, like, that's not a big deal. And I just played everything down. I didn't, I didn't understand 
even a little bit how to make it sound like something at all or you know so it it was it was very hard to be prepared for this and uh, at some point I ran out of money and my dad was <laughs> my dad had to help me which was incredibly um embarrassing but at the same time um very generous of him so yeah and so you took off what from the UK to cycle around the world no so um one of my incredibly stupid am I allowed to say that one of my not so good decisions was to start and finish in Australia I don't know why I thought that. It was just really random. I was like, I want to go to Australia and I'm going to have to go there anyway. So why don't I just start and finish there? When else am I going to get to enjoy the country? Um, I'll tell you later why it was not a great idea to finish there. Um, anyway, started from Perth across Australia, um, Perth to Brisbane. Flew to Wellington, Wellington to Auckland, so across North Island of New Zealand. Flew to... Vancouver and took an incredibly zigzag route across uh, Canada into Halifax um, and yeah I realized I, I wasn't going to get a US visa so I had to like cover more distance than I should have in in in, in Canada anyway um, to Halifax and then Iceland but then I couldn't go all the way across Iceland because of an accident so Portugal, flew to Portugal, Portugal, Spain, France, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Russia. Um, Russia was only from the Finnish border to Ufa. And then from there, I flew to India and did this weird route across India. And then from there, there I had finished 29,000 kilometers, um, 18,000 miles. So from there, I flew back to Australia. So that was the route. Wow. And... I mean, God, that's amazing because we had Mark Beaumont on the podcast and he was talking about sort of logistics of around the world cycle and sort of getting it sort of officiated by the Guinness Book Book of Records. And just sort of, as you say, the sort of logistics behind it, was it, was it more of a, an experience or was the record important to you? At the time, it was very important. But when I'd already started, I did some stuff that, um, so like, you know, stuff like at some point I just stopped caring about my logbook. I still had it and I still took the signatures, but I was just like very kind of reluctant to, if that makes sense. Or even stuff like, um, like not kind of bothering to back up my data and stuff like that. Uh, that meant that like, um, yeah, I don't know. So it meant a lot to me, the actual record bit. But some stuff happened to me on the way, which made it obvious that I wasn't going to get it. So halfway, I was in 55 days, so 9,020 miles i had done in 55 days. And I only realized when I was asked about it, that I actually don't have consistent evidence of that so um one thing that really bothered me was the spot tracker it just made me incredibly aware and incredibly less adventurous like it just reduced the whole fun factor for me so I just turned it off I was like I was just like fuck it <laughs> and obviously that's not the way to go but go and tell that to the 19 year old me like you know she took some weird decisions and yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I, at the time, even if the record meant so much for me, I almost expected to get the get get it without actually um, bearing to the consequences of it. Like actually having that pressure of the spot tracker, actually having the kind of pressure of. Um, oh shit I need to back this up or oh shit I need to take the signature and then again next time like when I stop somewhere I have to get it there and then again and you know all of that was just like overwhelming because also another thing to remember was that in some parts of the world um until films um had offered to like support with some filming 
Um, but again, my attempt was unsupported. So what ended up happening was that I selected a couple of people. Uh, one of them was like a friend of mine to join the film crew and kind of, you know, film some bits of this ride. Um, and what actually ended up happening was that they joined, but I was doing the logistics uh, for most of it. So that meant that it was just overwhelming to say the least. And, um, and one thing I had learned was that I can either have fun and strictly have fun, or I can, I can actually like also remember the other stuff and actually like take that pressure. So until the halfway point, I was doing both very well. And then Spain happened in Spain. I'm not sure if I've told, like, if you've heard about the story before, but I got mugged at knife point. So I, w I was I was riding late in the evening, uh, and a couple of guys on a motorcycle um, they pushed me off my bike, and one of them was taking stuff from my bags and stuff, and the other one, like, held me, and and there was a knife like right here, and. When you can see the knife and the edge of it shining, suddenly your life flashes in front of you and you do realize what you actually want out of what you're experiencing. And, well, what I wanted was to be alive, basically. Um, but anyway, um, eventually we found that, um, well, we, I, it was just me, there wasn't a silk at that point. I was looking at the license plate of the motorbike and I was memorizing the numbers, but what ended up happening was they took what they had to, um, pushed me along the edge of this road, I fell off head first, um, and then I heard a thud, which I later found out was my bike falling on me, um, and I think I was unconscious for I don't know how long, but I got up, and um, whenever I got up, I kind of... I was like, shit, that's my bike. And then I was like, is my frame bag still there? And it was. I kind of pulled my head torch out of there because when you're essentially living on your bike, you know where everything is, isn't it? So I pulled my head torch off um, out and found my way back to the road. Um, walked to this gas station. Must have been like five or so kilometers. Uh, so a good kind of hour, if not more. Um... And uh, this guy must have felt incredibly bad for me because he literally just shut everything there and he was like, right, we need to, like, I need to help you, uh, that sort of thing. So he took me for a coffee um, to this place, like, behind. It was like a motel kind of place. So my, my lips were bleeding, my nose was bleeding, and they were like... I was basically, like, a bit bruised. I was not looking good, you know? Um, and... I didn't remember much at all. I just remembered this number that I was memorizing to keep fear away as much as I could. So I was memor I had memorized this number which started with a B ended with a six and I kept repeating it to this guy. And he didn't understand a thing, but this family was like, Ah, that's a number of a motorcycle. Like, you know, the structure of the numbers is like of a motorcycle. Um Anyway, they were like, they, they encouraged me to report it, which I did. Um, I was taken to a hospital. We found out that I had concussion. I couldn't keep much food down. I couldn't kind of drink properly. Um, my head hurt quite a bit. I couldn't balance much on my bike. I was just like really in a bad place. Um, and uh, yeah, at that point, I just decided that I wasn't going for the... I wasn't going for the fastest record anymore and also like I got back on the road within the next 48 hours well within the next 40 hours um, wasn't going for the record anymore it was taking I was going incredibly slow it's taking me so long to get anywhere um, and I, I just felt really rough for thousands of miles after that really because uh, bear in mind I was doing it took me I, I remember the first time I did 100 kilometers after the concussion 
incident was within a week of that and that took me eight hours because I could climb I could do the climbs but I couldn't do the downhills I just couldn't balance like if someone honked at me I would get out of the road and I would cry I cried so much like I now get bruises under and over my eyes if I cry a lot because um I don't know like I think it's from that because I had broken my nose or something. Um, but it's in, it's insane how much I had cried in those in those few days or months after that. But yeah, after that I um, decided to continue, and then then I took another fun decision to to um, instead of resting for eight days until my Russian visa was there in Finland, I was like, no. I don't want to rest rest. So I went to the Arctic Circle. Um, I took a plane to Avalo, um, took a bus to Inari, and then like went for a hike in, in the forest there with my friend's kind of backpack and left my bike at my friend's kind of mom's house. Um, and just, yeah, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to learn how to deal with the snow and how to survive in the snow from the people that I meet over there, uh, which I did. And yeah, then came back, got my Russian visa cycled in, through Russia in winter, which was a really interesting experience. Um, and yeah, definitely something I won't forget in a hurry. <laughs> Yeah, we had Geordie Stewart on who cycled through Siberia and he said, you know, the temperatures drop so low in that area and it's really inhospitable. It um, is. <laughs> <laughs> and for, from there, I mean, you were, what, you got through Russia and then flew to India. Is that right? Yeah, so I went from um, the Finnish and Russian border uh, rode all the way to Ufa from there um, and then yeah one of the interesting experiences actually before I get to the India bit was that a five-star hotel offered to host me for free just because I called them up from outside Moscow and I told them what I was doing and I told them that I need a place to stay and I just looked that you were a hotel in Samara and I um, can, like, you know, can I get a booking and something like that? I, I don't remember what I said, but I knew they spoke English. And at that point, I could only speak people in, I could only expect people in cities to speak English at that point, because I'd learned that soon enough that in the rural areas, people wouldn't quite know English. Um, and I got to Samara um and there were these very well-dressed people uh, applauding as I walked up my bike up this kind of stairway. And as it turned out, and, and then the minute I stopped, they stopped and they took stuff off my bike. And I was like, oh, wait, they were clapping for me. Oh, thank you. Like it was it was literally like that. Um Initially, I had thought there was like a Russian celebrity or something behind, but apparently not. Um, and they baked me this beautiful cake with, and, and the, it had written, we believe you can do it. Um, and that was so nice, like really nice. And they they offered me, <laughs> they offered me hot tub and stuff. And like, you know, they offered me their best room gave me a lot of food which I needed at that point like you know um and they were incredibly kind to me and uh yeah I'll never forget that experience so that was really cool and then I obviously continued my ride to Ufa and from Ufa I flew to um flew to India and then yeah there was a ride I don't even remember was it 5,000 or 6,000 or somewhere in between kilometers in India um, and that was interesting because I had been by myself for so long. Like when you've ridden 24, 25,000 kilometers by yourself and you've been in your own head for so long and suddenly you're in a country that you recognize places, recognize language and recognize people in and 
oh, it, I can't even describe how it felt. And my parents said they would um, again drive in like 50 to 100 kilometer radius. And they, they were like, you can decide where you want to stay. And, you know, you can do your own payments and do that. We won't like support, support you. But we we need to know that you're okay because you've almost died thrice in the last three months. So um, I thought that was fair because once I got chased by a bear, second time the whole thingy, you know, with um, with the uh, with with the horrible people in Spain have well, when with the people who mugged me, that and uh, um, and at the Finnish Russian border I had like a. I, I kind of pulled something that didn't quite work. I told them that um, I gave them a passport and a visa and they were asking for money and I said, I'm not going to give them any money. And they were like insisting that they wouldn't let me enter without money, without like giving them some money. And I was like, I'm going to call my lawyer. And I didn't even have any signal or a SIM card for that matter. And I just pretended to call someone and I was speaking to them very loudly kind of like trying to make a statement that you know fuck you let me in kind of thing and then um yeah they had to let me in because they thought I was going to sue them or something and yeah but because of kind of a few of those experiences and also the fact that I had lung infection back in um back in Canada so um that didn't help either so like because my parents knew all those things now they were like god she like I would just want to make sure she pulls it through like you know India so that she has actually done what she wants to so they were like you know they were supportive but not increasingly <laughs> like you know they weren't allowed to be I, I was just like stay away from me but it's good that you're there but then it was also really strange mentally because of the familiarity and just just knowing that that I wasn't all by myself that was really strange um but yeah then I finished on Christmas Eve in Australia um and that was bizarre so I had run out of my Australian visa within the last week of my ride through India <laughs> and then I had to apply for like an emergency visa which arrived I got my visa on my way to the airport so I had booked my flight without having a visa in place living life on the edge what can I say uh, <laughs> um, and yeah then I got my visa reached Australia on Christmas Eve um, and it was literally just my parents and me and the um, like Marathi community kind of centre there um, and like no kind of friends or like that sort of thing which I would have loved to, you know, have at the finish line because I was looking forward to that part so much and for so long. Um, and on Christmas Day, everything was closed. Everything was closed. So instead, I just sat with my dad in that hotel um, and the hotel's bar, actually. And just we told the hotel what like I had just come back from. So we had an open tap for like um, cocktails. So I had quite a few of those. That was literally my, um, <laughs> that was Christmas day 2018 now. <laughs> On your trips, I mean, it's just an absolutely incredible story. What And, you know, that sort of time in the Russian hotel with them sort of putting you up and putting on a show. <laughs> What, what, what were the sort of other moments that really stuck out to you from that trip? Oh, okay. Day two um, of riding and I am already riding through some terrain that feels like I'm in the middle of nowhere in Australia, soon approaching Nullarbor, uh, well, quickly approaching Nullarbor. And this guy who had like silver teeth and and a very gangstery look. He was driving in this truck with his mate, I wanna say. Anyway, I'm riding and he's throwing cans of coke at me. 
um, like, you know, offering me that as, as such, like whilst we were both kind of, I was riding and he was driving. I caught it, put it in my pocket, kept riding. And then he throws another can of Coke at me. And I'm like, cool, okay, this guy's nice. I get it, put it in my pocket, keep going. And after four cans of Coke, he signals me to stop. So I'm like, fuck, now I have to stop. We don't, like... You know, sometimes you look at people and you, when you're by yourself and when you're in the middle of nowhere, mostly bad things run through your mind. Um, at least they did at that point, because probably I had to be a little judgmental to protect myself at that point. So stopped and this guy tells me that he has been in prison before. And he t- tells me that he's got like guns and stuff with him. Then he proceeds to give me a lot of hugs and a lot of high fives every other sentence. And um, yeah, he just looks and sounds very like gangstery. And then when I'm sneakily taking my phone out of the pocket, he takes my phone from me, dials his number. And calls on his own phone and then gives me a phone back and says, now you have my number. I'm the one you call. Um, then he called his family. And um, and then he had me talk to them and introduced me to his daughters and his wife. And took photos with me and was incredibly kind. And he kept checking in on me like over the next few days. And um, yeah interesting man but never judge a book by its cover as they say um and he was only looking out for me as it turned out and you know just being incredibly nice wow it it is amazing those sort of stories and as you say some of the people along the way on these trips that one does is incredible what was the sort of motivation because you went through quite a few hardships What was the sort of motivation in the back of your head that sort of kept you going? You know, after you'd been mugged and beaten in Spain, a lot of people might have thought of quitting. What was in the back of your mind that kept you going? Was it the motivation to break the record or to complete the circuit of around the world? Uh, It wasn't. It definitely wasn't to break a record anymore. (laughs) I'll tell you that right now. Um, What it was at that point was that I had nowhere else to go. My UK visa had expired. My parents lived in Oman. I didn't want to go to India or well, there was nowhere specific that I could go to India. Um, and I, I, the, when I thought of home, I thought of my, like of the student house in the UK where all my friends were. So the home for me in that moment was where I was and what I was doing. So I had to get back into that to feel comfortable again. And believe me, when you're concussed and when you decide to keep riding, you need to find something comfortable, something, anything. So for me, it was just talking to my friends for hours and hours on end on phone whilst riding counting frogs on the road dead frogs on the road or like you know like some really strange things just you know some and and again like I wanted to continue because I knew that if I did not I was gonna get to a place um which was darker inside of my own head and I had no idea how long it would take for me to get out of there if I didn't continue and I know like right now so how many years has it been um two and a half years after finish the only thing I regret is not having enough collective evidence of my ride if I hadn't done if I hadn't finished it I would have had bigger regrets. I would have regretted not having completed it. I would have re- I would have hated myself for it. And that's just how much I knew myself, which pushed me to keep going. And because I knew that when I'll be back, it will be a story to tell. And I knew that it wasn't going to be all bad. So I know cycling in winter sounds awful in Russia, but 
when I got there, yes, it was cold and miserable for a lot of it, but when it wasn't, riding in the night, it was just incredible shiny snow all around with only like that black light to focus on and sorry, black light, white light to focus on in the dark. And it just kind of every time I like think about it, I see exactly what I was seeing then. And it, I don't regret that at all. I would have felt really bad if I hadn't done it, you know, or even the Arctic experiences that I had in the middle of my, um, when, when my Russian visa was being processed, like, it would have been horrible if I hadn't done that. Like I would have, I would have not felt good about myself now. And earlier when we were talking about the incomplete feeling in yourself, um, by not doing certain things or by not having done certain things and then pushing yourself and doing those things and finding out how you actually feel about it. Like, I think that's what kind of motivated me because until I was done with it, something always felt incomplete. And then when I was done, only the evidence part of it felt incomplete, which I was fine with. Well, I wasn't fine with it for a long time. I was like, no, I want recognition. I want want to be accepted. And, you know, all of that. And now I think about it, I'm like, hey, look, I had all of those experiences with very less pressure. <laughs> um, and I actually had fun. So, yeah. That was that was what it was. I know it's not probably the answer you were looking for. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, it was. It's uh, it's amazing because, as you say, I mean, one of mine was the sort of fear of missing out what might happen tomorrow. That mm. was yeah. sometimes one of my greatest fears is you might miss the most exciting, the most incredible experience by not going on to yeah. the finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like with all these trips, the the end is always quite hollow and it's always quite, it never quite lives up to how it, <laughs> one might imagine, but it's actually the experiences in between that really matter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm sure there's probably someone saying, no, 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 the world record was amazing for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh God. I, I mean, I, I will say that. I would have quite liked that. I had trained so hard to make sure that my body was ready to pull 200 miles a day and make it around the world in 100 days, but that's not how it works. <laughs> that's just not how life works, is it? Like, <laughs> you don't really get what you need, what you want. You get what you need. What, what was that phrase? Something on those lines, isn't it? I'm not wise enough to say that, but someone else has said that and I just copied it. Well, I mean, that's it's just an incredible story. And thank you so much for sharing it today. There's, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each Ooh. guest each week. With the first being, um, on your trip or expeditions, what's the one gadget that you always take with you? Anything that plays music. <laughs> In the deepest, darkest times. I need my music. I need my Queen playlist. I need to play somebody to love. <laughs> there, there you have it. <laughs> um, what about your favorite adventure book? Oh, favorite adventure book. There's so many. There's so many. Um, I recently read Anna McNuff's, um, what was it? Adventure stories for adults? Bedtime stories uh, for adults. Anyway, that one. I quite like that. Um, but oh, there's so many that I actually like and enjoy. Like, I really like Juliana Buring's This Road I Ride because that started so many beautiful things for me. So I'm going to go with that as well. Um, why are adventures important to you? Because that's where I feel more myself when I'm riding my bike or when I'm kind of walking through terrains that are, I don't know, unfamiliar to me, that's where I feel like I thrive under kind of conditions which are out of my control. And I also feel very, um, well, obviously the incredible sense of freedom that comes through adventure is something that I didn't think I should mention because it kind of is obvious. But yeah, 
just feeling more myself and feeling in control of my reactions and um yeah what I'm doing and you know my decisions and just the self-sufficient feeling uh favorite quote the only way out is through that was written on on my bike by this guy called Abdullah Zainab who won Trans Am bike race back in 2019 I want to say and he got the course record for it I think I could be wrong I don't know about the course record but he won it by miles and miles if not days it was incredible he is incredible he filmed the first half of my Australian ride and um before continuing I asked him to because he's such a legend I was like you you got to write something that i am going to want to remind myself of on my bike and on a sticky note he wrote the only way out is through uh and yeah that was that was it like ever since then every time i find find myself in a sticky situation that's what i tell myself the only way out is through i think yeah what was another one the um the first one through the walls always the bloodiest <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one like that no i mean there's so many for it so i mean you could reel off so many um just quickly favorite adventure book i just realized the book that i really go back to like and i can listen to it or read it however many times that i i want to is mind of a survivor by megan hoyne um like on the days that i don't want to ride my bike or i am somewhere that i need to keep going otherwise i wouldn't get anywhere with my ride like if when i found myself in these situations i always tuned her book um i just always tuned into her book and i started it from like chapter 1 and i knew exactly at what point what chapter would come up and how long the audiobook lasts for when i'm reading i know what, how long have i got left to complete reading like i've just read it that many times and yeah megan hoyne is totally badass and she's like a yeah incredible female role model for me oh amazing people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of grand expeditions what's the one thing that you would recommend for people wanting to get started to just get started would be the recommendation because most of the incredible things that happen happen when you actually do take that first step and obviously it's not obvious at the time it does feel like there's something always incomplete there's never actually going to be the perfect time to get started um so yeah stick to your own schedule don't let other people tell you that you haven't prepared enough you are not enough like you need to do more and think more and have more to get started with what you want to get started with like don't let other people dictate that on you like if you think you're ready and even if you don't think you're ready if you've set a date then you know do it when that date has come or you know just get started no very very good finally what now what are you doing and how can people follow your adventures in the future Oh that's complicated what I'm doing. Um I am doing a lot of things right now so I I do a lot of freelance writing um for different magazines and websites. Um I am writing a book right now. Um I'm running a business uh called The Adventure Shed through which I help manage and plan expeditions and adventures for people. and you know help with the logistics the finances and sponsorships and all that marketing all that sort of stuff um and um yeah and i'm also kind of um i'm doing some project management stuff so i'm setting up a mountain biking race soon um uh, and then i'm also setting up um uh, an adventure festival somewhere that i can't mention just yet um so yeah i'm doing a lot of things and then i'm training for silk road mountain race um last time i tried it that didn't go well so this time we'll see uh yeah i'm going to look at it as an adventure not a race so that i actually get through it but um, yeah so that's kind of the stuff that i'm doing right now and 
as of tomorrow, I'll be back on the road for the second half of an adventure. <laughs> um, as for where you can find me, you can find me on my social media channels. So on Instagram and Twitter, I am at wheels and words. So W H E E L S W O R D S. Um, that's wheels and words. And yeah, on Facebook, I'm Vidangi Kulkarni. Yeah, that's that's where you can find me. And yeah, if you're planning your next adventure, please do email me. I would love to chat about it. And I recently launched something called Adventure Planning Blueprint, uh, which is um, a document where you can literally you can use that document to plan your adventure from start to end and it includes the templates and resources that are necessary to put your stuff like together and everything from like framing a sponsorship email for example or a proposal or you know creating marketing plan for that matter like all that sort of stuff but also route plan risk management and stuff like that uh, it's all there well, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your stories and I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me and yeah, it's been it's been great and I feel like chatting about my adventures today is going to help me for the adventure that I'm about to like set off on tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, thank you so much. Well, we'll be following and again, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to subscribe and sign up to the monthly newsletter, which is in the description below. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, tag me on Instagram at John Horsfall. I'm always keen to connect with other adventurers. And I look forward to next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.